Psalm 87, as we continue our study, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. A psalm of the sons of Korah, a song. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. This one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. The word of the Lord. Let's ask for help. Father, thank you for this psalm, this song. We pray, Lord, that it would correct our vision of the church. May we see it as you see it. Help us by your spirit, Lord, to know more of your great love for us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. As if answering the prayer request of David from Psalm 86, our psalm today praises the city of God. You remember David cried out in that psalm last, we looked at last week, he calls out all these petitions and the answer seems to be Psalm 87. What David was really longing for was to be with God in his place forever. I don't usually do this, but I'm going to open with a, with a bit of a longer quote from Augustine's massive city of God, because I think what it will help us do is understand what it is, what are we talking about when we're talking about the city of God? What does that even mean? Does he dwell in a city? Listen to this quote. These two cities, the city of God and the city of man, we find interwoven, as it were, in this present transitory world and mingled with one another. By two cities, I mean two societies of human beings, one of which is designated to reign with God for all eternity, the other doomed to undergo eternal punishment with the devil. The earthly city will not be everlasting, for when it is condemned to the final punishment, it will no longer be a city. It has its good in this world and rejoices to participate in it with such gladness as can be derived from things such as this. The earthly city is generally divided against itself by litigation, by wars, by battles, by the pursuit of victories that bring death with them or at best are doomed to death. While this heavenly city, therefore, is on a pilgrimage in this world, she calls out citizens from all nations and so collects a society of aliens 
speaking all languages, end quote. When we talk about the city of God or we hear about Zion, we're talking about people. People brought in by God. This was always his program. Really, Psalm 87, when I first read it, it seemed quirky to me. I want to know what's going on. There's some odd things in this psalm. And it's, it's only when I realized, oh, this is a psalm about God's people, that it began to make sense. To understand something of the city of God, you have to understand the people of God. You have to understand what God has done to gather us together. This, is, this has always been God's program. All the way back in Genesis, he tells Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. This is God's program. This is what he's after. This is what he's up to in the world. We see people early on do this in defiance of God. Right? Esau and Lamech building cities in, in defiance of God with their walls being built to keep God's people out. We see them, people gather together in a city and build a tower as if to reach heaven by their own good works. Do you remember that story? Cities didn't have a good reputation early on. So is God's original design of bringing his people together, did it fail? No, at the same time that you see all those things happening, you see God come and make covenants with Abraham. Genesis 12, 15, and 17, God makes his covenant. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Yeah, God is not done with his program. Just because we failed in rebellion against God doesn't mean he's done. This psalm is about God not being done. He's not finished. God promises to be with his people in his place forever. So as time goes by, we see no such city of all the gathering of the nations until we come to David. We come to David and we see him rule as king and he, he takes the ark and sets it in Jerusalem and makes it the capital city. And there we find Mount Zion, the highest point in Jerusalem, the city of peace. Zion is contrasted with every other city because it's founded as the fortress city of God himself. So here's how we'll look at the psalm. We'll look at it in three images that were given. One, a city itself. Two, a mother. And lastly, a spring. A city, a mother, and a spring. First, the city itself. For us to begin to understand the importance of a city, we need to remember that the city of God is actually the people of God. It's the people of God. It's where God dwells with his people in his place forever. This is what makes the city special. In a very real sense, we could say again that this psalm is about the church. You and I, we comprise the city of God as believers in Christ. When you think of the church generally, what, what do you think? 
This was an interesting mental exercise because I had to think about how do I think of the church? And you think, ah, well, you're a pastor. You, You only think the best things or you only think good things when you think of the church. Not necessarily. I think we would have a whole lot of complex answers in this room to the to that question. What do you think of the church? You think of scandal, the rise and fall of Mars Hill, abuse of power. Maybe your thoughts are more fond. People you love, church family that have greatly influenced your life. There have always been and there always will be a diverse answer to that question. What do you think of the church? But maybe a better question than that, even a better question posed in this psalm is not what what thoughts we think about the church, but what does God think about the church? Is he a cynic like us? Our vision is dull. Our vision of the the church, especially in our day, grows dull and dim. It's kind of take it or leave it attitude. It's kind of, um, it's like trying to watch something on a real old TV, right? My grandmother had this old TV, turned it on, it's kind of black and white, everything's blurry. As contrasted to this real sharp, high definition color that, that we get. And I think that's the difference between our vision of the church and God's vision of it. He, he's high definition. He sees everything and knows it and loves it. Notice again, verses one through three, on the holy mountain stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken, O city of God. really interesting characterization. If you look up Zion in Jerusalem, you can look it up, look up the topography and all this stuff. It is not an impress. I've never been there. I've never stood in Jerusalem to see it, but the pictures, it is not an impressive mountain. 2,500 feet in elevation. You could drive a few hours away from here and find something as impressive as that. So it's not like the the Colorado Rockies. It's not even like the Smokies. It's not these vast mountains. But yet it's praised again and again and again in Scripture. Psalm 48 has a similar reflection. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. I mean, you would think that this would be some towering mountain. It's not. It's not the size of the mountain, but it's the place itself. Zion is the place where the ark was, where heaven touched earth. That's what made it so big. That's what made it so grand. It's not the size of the mountain. It's that God was there dwelling with his people. God's loving and sovereign choice in bringing his people to this place is what makes it so great. God saved sinners and he brought his people out of bondage and gave them this place, heaven touching earth. God loves his church. 
That's what the psalm is about. He loves the gates of Zion more than all the other places of worship where they, the, the history of the people of God had gathered. He loves them and he delights to bring them in. He loves his church. He loves the church so much that he would send his son to die for her. The place where heaven touches earth. Ephesians 5 has a, a, a similar tone. It's, it's a passage we often hear in weddings, but I, I just want to read a little bit of this. Husbands, love your wives. Listen to this. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He loves his church. Listen, we get muddled in, in all our thoughts about the church. We see bad things happen. You know, this person did this to me. That, that thing happened over there. Yes, it's, it shouldn't be above criticism. But listen, the Lord loves his people. Consider the church. Consider who we are. Especially, we had to move today. We're in, we're in a smaller room. Everything is different. He doesn't love us any less. He loves his people. gave Christ to sanctify us. This is what God thinks of the church. In the church, the city of God on earth, men, women, boys, girls are brought from the outside in, from death to life in Christ. The church, the spiritual Zion of God on earth is here to announce good news to sinners. Jesus is king, and he, he rules in every realm. Notice verse 3 again. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Do we ever speak glorious things of the church? I'm not saying it's your job to go around and say glorious things about your pastor. That would not be true. You would have to lie. Glorious things about God's people? Do we speak of the church in those ways? Listen, when I see this group, I see a glorious people bound together, brothers and sisters, beloved of God. Glorious things of you are spoken. I think it's utterly right to call out the church when it needs to be called out. I think abuse scandals need to come to light, my word. They need to be exposed. And discipline needs to occur. I also think we need to delight in what is true and lovely and good about the people of God. Speaking of these verses, Spurgeon said, Where God reveals his love the most, there should each, there should each believer most delight to be found. This is where we should delight to be found, where God has placed his love on his people, the city of God. Is your delight found in the love of God for his church? With the psalmist, can you say glorious things of you are spoken? He's talking about this city. 
So in the first image, we see the city, Zion, loved by God and spoken of in glorious ways. The second image is surprising. It's the image of a mother with a variety of children. From the city of God, we now get something of a census of birth records, which are going to serve to prove citizenship in the city of God. So who belongs? That's kind of this next question. Who's in? really interesting four through six among those who know me I mentioned Rahab and Babylon behold Philistia and Tyre with Cush these this one was born there they say and of Zion it shall be said this one and that one were born in her for the most high himself will establish her the Lord records as he registers the peoples this one was born there this starts with this um, call to, to pay attention, and, and it's this kind of formal address right in the middle of the psalm. It's saying, hey, everybody, pay attention. Look at who the citizens of the city of Zion are. And then he goes in strange places. If you've paid attention in your Bible, Rahab is synonymous with Egypt. Babylon is listed. These are two great enemies of Israel. The, you would not want to move, if you were an Israelite, right? You would not want to move in to Ra, next to Rahab. You're not going to move into that neighborhood. You, you would not want to move in. Okay, you wake up one morning and you find out your next door neighbor is Babylonian. That would be a terrible thing. Remember, Babylon came and wiped them out and hauled them away in slavery, deported them. Enemies. Philistia and Tyre, not good relationships. Cush, very far away. Ethiopia. All of these nations are said to have come to Zion and have a place there. These are Gentile nations, and yet we're told that God himself has registered them as cities of Zion. They were born there. It's a fascinating reality. Clearly, at this point, we know we're not talking about the physical city of Jerusalem, the physical Zion. If you were born in Cush or Egypt or Babylon, clearly you are not from Jerusalem. However, we're meant to see that this is the heavenly city of God. What we heard earlier in Hebrews 12, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. This is God's ultimate city, his ultimate place where he's going to be with his people forever. Paul would say it like this. These people were once aliens to the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, but now they have come in. Listen, the city of God has, has all the people of God, and it, it's diverse. It doesn't look the way that you might think it looks. People are coming in from everywhere, enemies of God, and this is not anything new. Genesis 22, I will surely bless you and will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring, listen, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. 
This is not a shocking reality to the people of God. It shouldn't shock us. This is always God's program. Isaiah chapter 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow into it and many peoples shall come. This theme grows and grows and grows across the pages of Scripture to the Great Commission where the Lord sends His people, deploys them to go out into the world, baptizing, making disciples, teaching them all that Christ has commanded. Listen, the gospel is meant to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. We see this list in Acts 2 of all these nations coming together. They come together in Christ. What, is this, what does this snapshot have to do with us? What does this snapshot of Zion with all these different people coming in have to do with us? I think there are a few applications. First, we need to know and remember that God is working in other places and in other people in ways that we have no idea. He's working outside. I know this is shocking. Outside the ministry of Grace Presbyterian Church, God is on mission. It's bigger than us. He is reaching people not like us and calling them into his heavenly city. I think sometimes we have a real narrow view of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that it's people that look like us. However, there is no class or category of person too far away for God to reach. He delights to welcome even his enemies. Come. Jesus gives a parable about this. This banquet that was going to happen, this, this wealthy guy going to throw a, a banquet and invite all his friends. These would be upstanding people, upstanding members of society. And what do those friends say? Do you remember the story? It's kind of something like this. I'm busy that day. Thank you for hosting the banquet. That sounds great. I can't make it. Again and again and again, the people that you think should come, his friends actually reject. And then what does he say to do to his servants? Go out. Go into the highways, the places that aren't safe, and the hedges. Again, not things of safety. Go, go there and get them and bring them here and clothe them with these garments. They're coming to my party. That's Jesus building his Zion. Maybe you're here this morning and maybe you're, you're feeling like you are an outsider. The invitation from Psalm 87 couldn't be more clear. Come in because of God's work, because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come in. There is a place in the heavenly Jerusalem for you. I think there's a second way that this expansive mission interacts with us. We're, we're called to get to work. As citizens of heaven, we are to go out as ambassadors with the good news on our tongues. You're like, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism. Can you pray? Who was the last person that you prayed for? That you know, they don't know the Lord. Have you prayed for lost family members and friends? Have you offered to pray with them? 
it's awkward at first, but it gets easier. Just pray with somebody. Somebody comes and tells you something. Thank you so much for telling me that. Can I pray with you? You don't have to be an evangelist to care and go out with good news. Yeah, we support missionaries, and that's great. We love them and love to have relationships with them, and we should do that. But are we involved in mission at all? There's a third application. We might tell others of Christ and the gospel, but God is the one who is effectively calling himself. He's the... He's doing the real work. He's doing the heavy lifting. Verse 4, this one was born there. Verse 5, this one and that one were born in her. This one was born there. This is God's work. It's him giving, he, he's giving all the, um, the citizenship away. It's his work. Because of man's fall, we're bent inward away from the Lord and this is why we have to be born again. That's exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about a different birth. Nicodemus was a religious professional. He was born a Jew and a citizen of Jerusalem. He was the elite class of his day. He was a thinker. He had all the credentials to make him an excellent city of Zion, but he was lost. He was lost. Jesus told him, hey, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. You need a, a complete new start. And right away, Nicodemus is like, wait a minute. How is that going to happen? I can't do that. And do you know what? Do you remember what Jesus told him? He basically said, you're right. You can't do that. The Spirit of God has to be at work to call you from death to life, to give you this new birth. God does the heavy lifting. I believe by the end of John, we see him worshiping Jesus. We see his conversion has happened. Citizens of the heavenly Zion are those who have been born again in Christ. Yes, us. Believers here, Grace Presbyterian Church, because of the love of God, citizens of heaven, but also our enemies, also those people over there. So we have the psalm reflecting on the city, the mother finally culminating in one more metaphor, that of springs, singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. What is the response of such a joyous ingathering? This is God's view of his, of his people. The city of God, glorious things of you are spoken. All these different people flowing in because of, of God's work to this place. What is the response? Joy. Worship. What kind of city... Is this heavenly Zion? It's one of joy and praise. Really, this psalm is it's kind of out of place. You, you could take this thing and stick it in Revelation as a glimpse of heaven. 
Listen to Revelation 7. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. It's a picture of glory. Heaven. Psalm 87 is about heaven. The only right response to the greatness of the Lord's salvation is the joy of his people. Does it shock us that springs are found here? It shouldn't. Springs are in Eden. It's the headwaters of these great rivers that flow, giving life to the land. Rivers are found in glory in heaven. Springs flowing, giving life, coming from the throne of God himself. All my springs are in you. Life, in other words, comes from you. Refreshment and satisfaction flow from this relationship with God and Christ. The church, the people of God gathered and nourished and given life by God. I don't know about you, but this is not always my experience. If I'm being honest and I thought about it this week, I don't always rejoice like the psalmist. Often for me, I'm a bit introspective and can struggle with melancholy about the church, about the world, about myself. For me, this verse cuts across that melancholy. It cuts across that introversion, telling me I should be marked as a person Praise and celebration and joy. We should not be marked more by our fears than by our faith in Christ. The resources of God's grace are unending. And this is God's view of his church. He loves it. He gathers it together saying that our citizenship is actually because of his work. It's actually with God himself. And he gives us reason for celebration, reason for joy. Singers and dancers saying and praising all our springs are in you. John Newton wrote a hymn based on Psalm 87 called Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. One verse says this, who can faint while such a river ever flows their thirst to assuage? Grace, which like the Lord, the giver, never fails from age to age. This is what we have come to. This is what we have arrived at. This, the church, the Zion of God, a river, grace in Christ that flows and never ever fails. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this little psalm, uh, this kind of out of place, out of the way psalm that you give us to, to show us your love for your people. So I pray, Lord, that when our attitude tends to look negatively on your church, that you would correct us, that you would give us this glorious vision of your people. Lord, thank you for loving your church so much that you gave your only son to come and die for her.
to make her beautiful. Lord, teach us this view and may that view shape us to cause us to be people who celebrate your gospel. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.